0: It's always a joy to be back up here, and uh, I have a week left in the semester, so I'm in the thick of finals, so this is a little reprieve for me as well, so selfishly ask that you pray that I get through this week, and my family as well. Uh, Emily's at home with the kids right now, they're all uh, sniffly, she texted me between services saying that Violet's nose is like a waterfall, so <laughs> pray, pray for the kids as well. Um, if you guys would turn uh, with me, uh, our sermon text this morning is uh, Psalm 32, we'll be reading the whole Psalm, Psalm 32. starting in uh, verse one. Hear now God's word. Blessed is the one, or pardon me, let me start back, a maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you Lord, for uh, this opportunity this morning that you've uh, you've called us God to to hear your word, Lord to come to you and to sing praises in your name and I do ask as we uh, read and expound on your word that uh, you would make it uh, effective Lord by your spirit that you would open our eyes and open our ears, God, and that it would be uh, beneficial not just uh, to increase our our understanding and knowledge, but that it would uh, deepen our faith in you, God, and that you would do a work this morning through these words. Um, I ask, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So in uh, 1843... Uh, arguably, one of Edgar Allan Poe's most famous short stories uh, was published. It was entitled "The Tell-Tale Heart," and it's uh, you know it's only I think about three or four pages. But even though it's such a short story, it is a very riveting uh, read. Uh, it's a very fast-paced, almost a thriller of a read by modern standards. And uh, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's uh, it tells the story of uh, of a man who we. Meet you know we we see the story through his eyes. He's the narrator, and we quickly learn that this narrator is pretty untrustworthy. And in fact, we come to realize soon that he's he's crazy. He's insane, and he uh, he tells the reader of his of his desire to uh, to murder a man uh, who he lives with, this old man. And he doesn't even tell us really why he wants to murder him. The only thing he says to give us some sort of clue is he says that this old man that he wants to kill has these piercing blue eyes and that he can't stand when the man looks at him. So he starts to plot this murder. And so you know, as the story progresses, every night as the old man is sleeping, the narrator goes into the old man's room, and he stands at the edge of his bed, and he just stands over him, and he thinks about what he's going to do to him. So this happens night after night, and every night he doesn't you know commit the act, but he thinks about it, and he stands there for hours. And after uh, seven or eight nights, as he's standing there, the old man unexpectedly wakes up, and he sees... The narrator standing over his bed and, you know, not surprisingly, he screams and he's terrified. And in this moment of uh, frenzy, the, the murderer or the narrator becomes a murderer. He kills the old man and then he takes the old man's body and he hides it under the floorboards of the house. Sure, and it's a little morbid for a Sunday morning, but uh, you know. So after this, after he puts the man's body under the floorboards, you know, he thinks that the, the deed is done, and he he's almost uh, you know he's he's pleased with himself. He's excited that he's finally committed this act, and um, and then all of a sudden there's a knock at the door, and two policemen come and they they said you know they heard this scream, someone's reported it, and they want to make sure everything's okay. So you know almost gleefully he invites the, the policeman in because he, he knows there's no way that these policemen are going to find out what I did. And so he invites them in. He brings them into the, to the very room where he's killed the man, the very room where the man is buried. And he grabs them seats. They start to you know, sit down and start talking. And he begins to notice a sound. As he's talking to them, he hears this dull uh, thudding sound. and he, you know, First, he's, he, he thinks you know, he's excited. He's, his heart's racing. He thinks probably it's just a pounding in his head. But as he begins or as he continues to talk, to the police officers, he realizes that the sound is not coming from inside of him. It gets louder and louder, and he realizes the, the pounding is actually coming from the room itself, and specifically, the pounding is coming from beneath the floorboards, and he comes to the realization, or what he believes is to, uh, to be the case, is that the pounding is coming from the beating heart of the man whom he's killed. And so as he's talking to the police officers, the pounding gets louder and louder, and it gets so loud to the point where it's deafening, and he can't concentrate on anything, and the pounding begins to actually drive him even more insane than we already suspect that he is. And so, you know, as he, as as he can bear it no longer, as he's dealing with this pounding that's just deafening and consuming his thoughts, in the, the very final climactic statement, as he stands up at the end of the story, he declares to the police officers, he says, I admit the deed." Tear up the planks here. It is the beating of his hideous heart. And then the story ends. And I I share the story this morning, not because I suspect that any of you in this room, or at least I pray that none of you have any beating hearts under your floorboards, but I do think that this story is, you know, it's compelling, it's gripping. And I think in part, the reason why the story is so compelling is that, you know, while the details may not, you know, sync up with our everyday reality, I think the way that it portrays guilt and secrets and, and the power of, of sin in our lives is very powerful. It's very compelling. You know, it shows us what, uh, what a consuming uh, thing that secrets can, uh, can play in our lives, how they can eat away at us and become the only thing that we're concerned about. And they begin to eat away at our very lives. And in a similar way this morning, just like the telltale heart, David is sharing something similar with us. He's sharing with us, the, uh, through his own experience, the power and the weight, the crushing weight that unconfessed sin can have and had in his life. But luckily, unlike the, the telltale Heart, which is you know, a terrible ending, luckily David not only tells us his experience and tells us how traumatic and how consuming this experience was, but he tells us the remedy and how he tells us how to get beyond this experience. And so as we look at David's uh, uh, retelling of this event, as we look through what he's learned, I want to consider this psalm under three headings this morning. And these headings are probably ones that are familiar to many of you. And we'll we'll look at Psalm 32 under these three headings. David's guilt in verses 1 through 4, God's grace in verses 5 through 9, and our gratitude in verses 10 and 11. So guilt, grace, and gratitude. So our first heading this morning, guilt. Now, as we, um, as we begin our psalm, and I actually backtrack to make sure I read it, um, you'll notice it's titled A Mascul of David. And while we're not 100% sure what a mascul is, what, you know, what other requirements, there are a few of these throughout the, the book of Psalms, but uh, at least what we know is we, as you look through and you read through the mascles, uh they're essentially psalms that are intended to teach some sort of lesson. They're psalms of instruction. And you know, in this psalm, it's pretty clear what that lesson in. David actually tells us right in the beginning what lesson he's learned and what lesson he wants to teach us. He tells us that in verses one and two. He says that the, the lesson that he's learned, the, the moral of the story is, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And this, you know, this language of, of blessing is not uh, something that, or, or this, 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 uh, what he's learned about blessing is not something he's learned through you know, contemplation. It's not something he's learned by just sitting in his room and thinking about it really hard. It's something he's learned through a very real and very powerful uh, experience. Now, the, uh, the idea or this phrase, you know, blessed is the man, it's not the first time we've, we've heard this phrase either in the book of Psalms. It comes up from time to time, but actually the book of Psalms as a whole, the very beginning of the Psalter starts with this phrase, blessed is the man. We see in Psalm 1, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And so in Psalm 1, what we see is as the psalm starts, it's almost this, uh, this if-then statement, this conditional statement. You know, if I don't walk in the way of sinners, if I don't sit in the seat of scoffers, then I will be blessed. And then the psalm goes on to say what that blessed life looks like, right? That will be a, like a tree planted by streams of water. In our psalm, however, even though that's, that's definitely true, and there, you know, there is a blessing to be had by not walking in the counsel of the wicked and by seeking the Lord. Uh, The psalm here, David kind of turns that paradigm on his head because it's not an if then statement. It's not, if I do something, then I will become blessed. Rather, in this psalm, in Psalm 32, David is saying that something has been done to him. And by that thing being done, he has attained a state of blessedness. By his sins being forgiven, by his transgressions being removed, he's become blessed. And so that kind of, you know, begs the question, and it's the question that David's going to unpack here in the psalm, what do I have to, or what does a person need to have done to them to attain blessedness? How does a person, in other words, how how does a person get their sins and their transgressions removed? And that question, how does someone get their sins and transgressions removed is not, you know, particular to this psalm. It's really the question of the Old Testament ever since the fall. Right? How can a, a, a holy God or an unholy people stand before a holy God? How can we attain fellowship and relationship with God even despite our sin and our failures? And I think one more thing to note is that David presupposes something in this opening statement that you know, I think in our age is uh, either taken for granted or it's, it's dismissed out of hand and it's this idea that we as human beings actually have sins and guilt and transgressions that need to be taken care of, that need to be dealt with. And so after David states what he's learned, he states this lesson, this lesson of blessedness, David then begins to unpack what he's done to try and attain this state or what he's done to try and reach the state of blessedness. And the first thing he does, we see in verses 3 and 4, is that he kept silent. He says, for when I kept silent. And essentially what this means when he kept silent is he was trying to hide and cover his own sins. And we're not exactly told why, you know, we're not told the, the scenario um, that prompted this psalm. You know, many people think uh, or connect this psalm to Psalm 51 and the story of David and Bathsheba, right? That, you know, Psalm 51 is the after, and this is the before. As David, he's, he's taken Uriah, or sorry, he's taken Bathsheba, he's killed uh, Uriah. And this is right before Nathan comes to him and, and presents his sin before him and says, you are the man, you are the man who sinned. And so this is him dealing with that Hit that weight of hidden sin. And, you know, while that might be helpful to connect it to a historical event and to attach it there, we don't, I don't think we necessarily need to do that. And I think the reason for that is pretty simple. It's that we are very good at trying to hide our own sins. We're very much like David in this psalm. And there's a few reasons, I think, why we try uh, to hide our own sins in our life. You know, I think at a, at a very basic level, uh, we often try to hide our sins just as a A means of self-preservation, just as a as a way to get through the day. You know, for example, if you know if if I really told my boss, you know, what I thought of him, or if I really told my boss what I did with the hours that he gave me to do, you know, a project, maybe my job would be on the line, or maybe my promotion would be on the line. Or you know, a little closer to home, if I really told my close friends or I really told my spouse, you know, those those deep dark secrets that I'm hiding or those sins that I just keep struggling with, if if I really told them, perhaps. At that point, they would put me at arm's length and not see me in the same way. Perhaps they would, you know, not see me in a good light, and it would destroy the relationship. I think uh, on a deeper level, too, there's a sense that you know we we don't uh, or we hide our sin because we just don't grasp the depth of our own sin. You know, for, for those of us who have been Christians for any length of time, no, the more that we're exposed to our sin, the more we're exposed. To our own depravity, the more we come to terms with the fact that we never will grasp the depths of our own depravity. And that just comes to light little by little, but there's a, an area where we don't even know how sinful we truly are. And while those two are definitely true, I think uh, at its core, the, the most fundamental reason and the reason that um, Scripture most often talks about for why we try and hide our sin is that we often try to hide our sin and to, to you know, find ways to cover it as an attempt to, uh, to attain or to maintain some semblance of self-righteousness. You know, you think back all the way to the garden, to Adam and Eve, right? They, they sinned, they realized they were naked, and what's the first thing that they did? They hid themselves, and they put coverings of fig leaves on them, and they hid from the Lord. They knew that there was something wrong with them, and they covered up, or they tried to cover up at least, their sin. They were trying to find some way to cover up that sense of sin in their lives and to put on an outward show that everything was okay. And David is doing the same thing. He's trying to put on a show. He's trying to uh, make it seem that even though on the inside everything is dark and corrupted and ugly, on the outside everything's totally fine. Now, unfortunately, and, you know, just like the, uh, the narrator and the telltale heart, the more that David tries to hide his sin, the more that David tries to pretend that his sin is not there, the more and more it begins to eat away and to consume his life and to destroy it. You know, The language here in 3 and 4, my bones wasted away through my groaning uh, all day and all night. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer. This is language for someone who's just literally dying on the inside, whose body is decaying. And even more than this, you know, this language is pretty intense. But even more than this, um, you know, David even says that God's hand was heavy. He says, "Your hand, day and night, was heavy upon me." And I think we can relate to that feeling—that when we are, you know, struggling and and trying to hide our sin and trying to make ourselves look a certain way, we can often feel. or or question God's attitude toward us. We can ask, does God really love me in spite of my sin? You know, is God really on my side or is he just, uh, uh, you know, some judge waiting to accuse me? And even Calvin, as he's commenting on this verse in his commentary, he says, nothing can feel more terrible than to have God for our enemy. And that's exactly what David is feeling. Is God on my side or is God my enemy? You know, in, in, in you know, simple terms, David was living a lie. And as one author very helpfully puts, when you live a lie, you live in death, and death takes its toll on you. So then moving on, you know, what is, what is the remedy? Obviously, it's not working for David. Obviously, his own endeavors aren't doing anything. It's actually making the problem worse. So uh, what is the solution? What does David finally do to get rid of his sin? And that's uh, the answer to that question is our second point this morning, and that's God's grace. So in verse five, David actually tells us, he says what he finally did to deal with his sin. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David's solution was confession. He confessed his sin to God. And he says, God forgave my iniquity. And it happens so fast that we might miss it or we might just skip right by it. But it is, in a sense, it's so simple what happens, David he's been struggling with this, it's been eating away at him and then he just goes to God, he confesses it and it's gone. God forgives him. And this, you know, this realization that's so amazing that it, it, it uh, leads David to exhort us, to the, you know, exhort the reader to do the same thing. He says in verse six, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. So he's encouraging us, seek God. You know, I went to God, I, I confessed my sin and God forgave me. So do the same thing. And that phrase, you know, uh, seek God at a time when he may be found, uh, we might say in our Reformed uh, vernacular, we might say something like, uh, seek God by attending to the means of grace. You know, seek those things and those uh, times where God has promised to meet us and where he has promised to hear us. You know, for example, in in the Psalm, you know, David tells us to pray, he says, pray to God, call out to God and confess your sins and God will, will hear you. Or we look to, you know, as we, as we did this morning, as we come corporately, we confess our sins to God and we ask for forgiveness. And just as Scott read uh, verse 5 this morning, you know, God from his word tells us that we are forgiven. And then, you know, even in, this, in the sacraments, we look to our baptism where God has promised and he's sealed the forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins. He's washed away our sins. Just as water cleanses the body, so has God removed our sins from us and cleansed our consciences. And in the supper, where as we partake and as Christ feeds us on his body and his blood, Christ says as he, as he instituted the supper that these things are broken and are poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And it is, it is certainly good news. It's certainly something David is telling us to seek out diligently because it is so good that God has given us these means to, be, to know that our sins are forgiven. But there's also, if we look, there's also a, a warning attached to this exhortation uh, that phrase, you know, seek God at a time when he may be found could also be rendered something like seek God before it's too late. Seek God at this time because there might not be another time. And this, you know, this is kind of a, um, heightened by the, the metaphor that David uses here in verse six that uh, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. And, um, you know, I, I think when, uh, back to when I was a kid, there was, a, there was always these shows every once in a while, they were like, uh, you know, uh, great rescues caught on film or caught on camera. You know, they have a a firefighter rescuing people from a burning building and they'd always have something like someone was, was swept away in a flash flood or someone was in a river and it was moving too fast for them. And then there's always this awesome rescue scene where the Coast Guard comes out on a helicopter and, you know, saves the day. But the narrator would always say something very similar. He'd say something like, you know, before they knew it, they were swept away in the raging waters and they were hanging on for dear life. I think something similar is what David's getting at here. He's saying, seek God, seek forgiveness before the raging waters of sin wash you away. And we've all seen this either in our own lives or the lives of those around us. The the destructive power of sin, you know, there's someone that we assume on the outside, they they look fine, they're doing all right. And then before we know it, some secret sin that we had no idea about, it comes to light and their lives are ruined. The lives of those around them are ruined. Churches are ruined are harmed and, uh, you know, takes a long time to rebuild oftentimes. And so David is warning us against that. He's saying, seek God now. Seek God before it's too late. Rely on God. Come to God. Don't wait till the last minute. And, uh, you know, in the the same way, if we even look at the the, the Reformation history, um, I think this point, this call to constant repentance is emphasized. If you uh, look back at Martin Luther's 95 thesis, you know, the, the document that started the Reforma- uh, Reformation. As Martin Luther, as he's, you know, hammering that onto the, the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, um, you know, the very first statement, the very first statement of the theses that started the Reformation, uh, thesis, thesis one says, the whole of the Christian life, the entirety of the Christian life ought to be a life of repentance. And that's what David is urging for us to do here, to live our life in a constant state of repentance, constantly seeking God as our continual source of refuge and comfort and forgiveness. And David says in verse 7, that you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And David is encouraging us, stay there, go there. Trust in God as your uh, place of refuge. So we see here, there's this, uh, moving on from verse 7 to verse 8, there's actually an interesting break here. We see in verse 8, actually, there's a, there's a new speaker, right? So uh, in verse 8, it starts, I will instruct, instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, obviously, this is, isn't David speaking here. David's not the one who's going to teach us and counsel us and have his eye upon us. What we actually see here is that God himself is interjecting in this, in this psalm. This is the voice of the Lord, which might seem a little out of place. You know, as I've mentioned earlier, you know, this is a masculine, this is a teaching psalm. So we, uh, we should be able to follow the logic and, and move through and see David's argument. And all of a sudden, God just breaks into the psalm and speaks to us directly. And while it does maybe seem out of place or a little jarring, I think, in part, this interjection is one of the applications of the psalm. And what I mean by that is, you know, let's, let's say David had his sins forgiven, let's say he went to God, God forgave him his sin, and then David just went on about his way. I don't think that that would solve David's problem. I don't think that that would lead to what we would consider a blessed life. The purpose you know, of forgiveness, I should say, is not an end in and of itself. The purpose of forgiveness, and and what we see with, with David here, is that when he was forgiven, what it did was it restored his relationship and his fellowship with God. That when uh, David's sin was covered, when he came to the Lord, God then spoke to him. God instructed him. God called to him. And God tells him that, I will instruct you. I will teach you. I will counsel you. And my eye will be upon you. And in these words, we might even hear an echo of Christ's own words in, uh, in the Gospels. In Matthew 11, as Jesus is calling to the crowds to repent, he's inviting them to follow him. And then at the end of this sermon, if you will, he looks to the crowd and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so here too in our psalm this morning, God is inviting David and God is inviting us to learn from him, to have fellowship with him, to know that our sins are forgiven and to be restored. In relationship with him. And you know, even more than this, in verse nine, he's saying, Don't be stubborn. You know, don't be like a mule or like a, a horse. Don't wait till the last minute and have to be curbed and bridled. But just rest, trust in God. Stop trying to do it in our own strength and let God guide our path. Not our own attempts at righteousness, but God's work of righteousness in our life. And so we see when our sins are covered, when our transgressions are forgiven. As I've said, our our relationship to God is restored. It's in a right standing. And that's the point of the psalm. That's what David is moving towards. And so looking at our first two points, having seen our guilt, which separates us from God, having seen God's grace and forgiving and restoring us into fellowship, now David moves, up, moves on and answers the question of what then is our response? What should we do in light of this salvation that God has given to us? And that's our third point this morning, and that's our gratitude. So my, uh, my goal this morning, and I, don't, I think David's uh, purpose in writing the psalm is not to turn ourselves ultimately inward on ourselves. I don't think the psalm is trying to uh, make us spiritual navel gazers, if you will. You know, always asking ourselves the question, always reflecting, have I, have I repented enough? Have I done enough repentance? Have I repented good enough? Have I thought of all the possible sins that I've done and have I repented sufficiently? You know, David tells us we have access to God. We can pray to God. God's given us the means of grace to call on Him and to confess our sins. And the truth of the matter is we can never repent enough. There's never enough repenting we can do to earn anything. You know, As, uh, as fallen people, we're really good at uh, turning things into works, and we can even turn repentance itself into a work we can you know, think, about, you know, think about how often we repent or how good our repentance is, and if we're just sorry enough, God will finally be pleased with us. And I think the Westminster Confession uh, clarifies this really helpfully and makes it, makes it clear what you know, the proper role of repentance is in the life of the believer. You know, it begins by the chapter 15 on repentance. It begins to talk about the, the essential nature of repentance, that as Christians we will repent, and it's crucial in our Christian life to repent, and God calls us to that. But it makes this very helpful distinction. It says, repentance may not be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. Repentance then uh, is not the root of God's favor or God's grace in our lives, but it is the fruit of God's grace in our life. Or to say it another way, we don't repent as a way to earn God's good standing, but because of God's grace and because of our standing before God, We are enabled to repent. Now I mentioned uh, earlier, you know that there was it was so simple in some regard that it was so simple that David could just go to God, confess his sin, and God forgave him. And and that is true. I I, you know want to emphasize how how easy it is that we go to God and God promises to forgive us. But I think you know one lingering question that we might have in our minds either now or or from time to time is you know while while we can follow the logic, while we can say, yes, I agree, there's a, you know, there's a state of blessedness that we ought to, you know, that we uh, attain in some way, that we attain this through our sins being forgiven. That makes sense to me. And we can even agree that, yes, you know, hiding my own sin is awful, and we ought to confess our sins to God. I think the question sometimes we can have is, how do I know that this is true of me? You know, in other words, how do I know that, that you know? while it makes sense, the flow of the argument, how do I know that I'm one of the blessed ones that David is talking about here? And I think the way that that's answered is, while I said it's, it's simple in one regards, the, the truth of what David's saying, I think by looking at the costliness of what this uh, forgiveness cost and what it uh, meant for God to earn our forgiveness, I think that really shows us that this Forgiveness is for us, that it belongs to us. When we look at what Christ had to do to secure our forgiveness, we can know that we are the blessed ones that David is talking about. For example, in verse one, as David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. We can know that we are blessed, that we are the blessed ones because Christ became a curse for us, that our sins are not merely hidden, they're not merely covered or put aside, but they were actually placed on the righteous son of God, or for example, in verse four, as David is describing his experience of feeling like God's hand was was heavy upon him, we can know be uh, you know for sure that even though at time, at times God's hand can feel heavy on us and discipline as you know just as a father disciplines his son, God can you know have a heavy hand of discipline on our on our actions. We can know that God's hand of wrath and His hand of judgment will never be placed upon us because it was placed. On his own son, that his hand was heavy on Christ, that Christ's strength was dried up unto death. Or in verse six, you know, he says, surely in the, great, uh, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Well, we can trust that the raging waters of God's judgment have been held back from us forever because they've been poured out on the son of God. And as he goes on to say in verse seven, we have found shelter and Christ or in God declares shouts of deliverance over us in Christ, that we have been delivered because of what Christ has done for us. And then even in verse 10, it says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in him. And so we see, just as he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. We are told in Isaiah that that Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it goes on to say that, that Christ was accounted among the wicked, that he was condemned in our place. And therefore, as it says, the the steadfast love of God surrounds those who trust in him. And so in light of this, in light of the the cost of our forgiveness, in light of all that God has done for us, what then is our response? What does David tell us to do in, in response to that? And he finishes the psalm by telling us in verse 11, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So in response to what God has done in bringing us to faith and bringing us to repentance, God simply calls us to rejoice, to shout for joy. And that's because that's all that we can do. There's nothing left. There's no work for us to do. It's all been done for us. All we're left to do is to thank God and praise him for what he's done through Christ. And I want to note also, not only are we called to this life of rejoicing and gratitude, but look at the titles that David ends the psalm with. Look how he describes God's people. He says, uh, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God can declare over us that we are righteous, that we are upright in heart because of what Christ has done for us. He takes our dead, sinful hearts, and he gives us hearts of flesh, as the scripture says, hearts that love God, that love the ways of God, that can walk in renewed obedience and he gives us a new standing, a standing of righteousness before God that re- restores our fellowship, that we can actually stand before a holy God. And not only can we stand before him, but we can enjoy fellowship. We can delight in him. We can praise him and give thanks to him. And that's all there, that there is left to do, is to give him all of our gratitude. So in conclusion, this morning I want to actually end on another short story. This one's a little more upbeat than the first one. Um, it's actually a Christmas story. It's a, like a short kid story that we discovered this last uh, Christmas season, and we're actually really grateful to have come across it. Um, it it's about this uh, this cobbler in a little German town, and you know, just like most Christmas stories start, he's kind of a curmudgeonly guy, and he's not very uh, uh, friendly or not very uh, giving of his resources. And then one night. Um, as, as he's going to bed, an angel appears in his room and the angel says, uh, you know, this night, uh, or not this night, but you know, this Christmas season, you are going to give a gift to God. That's your responsibility. You have to find a gift to give to God. And so the, the cobbler, he's, you know, he's obviously a little anxious about this. He starts to think about what he can buy or what he can make or what he can do to give to God. And, you know, obviously he realizes very soon that there's nothing that is good enough or, or honorable enough to to be presented to God as a Christmas present. And so he's, you know, he's starting to worry, and so he starts to go around the town, and he's asking uh, different people, you know, what, what should I give to God? What would you give to God? And as he's, as he's going around, he uh, stumbles across an old woman in the town named Gretchen, who's this wise old woman, very kind woman, and he says, you know, Gretchen, I have to give a, a gift to God this Christmas. What would you give to God as a Christmas present? And then Gretchen, without even skipping a beat, she replies to him, and she says, well... I would give him what I give him every day. My sins for his pardon, my weakness for his strength, and my sorrows for his joy. My sin for his pardon, my weakness for his strength, and my sorrows for his joy. So brothers and sisters, as the psalm tells us this morning, God has declared over us shouts of deliverance. He has forgiven our sins, he's declared us righteous. There's nothing else that we can do to earn anything. And so may we look to Christ this morning and and every morning and every day as the true and only source of grace and forgiveness in our life. May we not seek to hide our sins, but may we be quick to confess our sins daily to the only one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And may we live lives of praise and gratitude to the God who has done all of these things for us as people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we do give you thanks, Lord, for uh, your word, and Lord, what you've told us this morning, that you have forgiven our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you promised to be a refuge for us, Lord, and we do give you thanks and praise for all that you have done on our behalf. Strengthen our faith, God, we pray that uh, you would make us quick to come to you with our sins and our burdens, and Lord, I pray that we would continue to put, that you would continue to put to death in us the old man and make alive the new. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.